Not only about you, but sometimes I find myself uh, kind of taking this trip into the past in my, in my mind, in my brain, and see things happen and hear voices that I don't like, and then I recognize the voice, <laughs> and it's me. It's me. One of those uh, times was when I was in this music group, and we were planning, so this is years ago, okay, it's safe I don't have to be too humiliated, but it's years ago, and we were planning on going to the beach the next day. So we were planning what time we had to leave and so on, and I created a scene, okay? And I'm not going to tell you exactly what it was, because I don't want to be too humiliated, but I created a scene there about, you know, that I knew where we were going, which was Erie, Pennsylvania, the beach there, and I knew that, and I knew the area, and I knew how long it took, and blah, 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 blah. And the issue for me wasn't the fact that I was right about all this. <laughs> it purely had to do with me, with self-interest, because I didn't want to sleep in. I didn't want to get up early. Now, I wish I could say that I learned my lesson, you know, and I never again had to, you know, worry about proving that I was right and being obnoxious and so on, but I have. What I realized over time is that the problem with us is that we see ourselves from behind our face and behind our voice. You know, we're thinking we're Mother Teresa, and other people are seeing church lady. You know, we're thinking, you know, well, I'm being Billy Graham, and other people are seeing Bill Clinton or seeing Donald Trump. You know, behind our faces and behind our mouths, you know, you know I think I'm being Nelson Mandela, and other people are seeing Hitler. Because how we see ourselves behind our own faces and behind our own voices is very different from other people see us. Heaven's going to be an astounding place. It's going to be great. And, and here's what I think God is up to. I think God is up to helping us to have clarity here before we get there. Before we get there. See, heaven is going to be a place of, of you know, just <laughs> gorgeous. I mean, it's going to be great. Everybody's going to love it and so on. But there's also going to be this blinding light where we all of a sudden see things we never saw before. And we saw, see who we were. Paul puts it like this in uh, his book in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, hopefully we all do that, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. And here's the summary of that. We always have a choice. We always have a choice. See, we can ask God for his opinion. We can ask God for his help. We can ask God to, to lend us his humility and see ourselves as we are. Or we can just kind of blunder on with our need to be right, blame and defend, shame, you know, disapprove, do all the things that people do when they're trying to get their own way. The very heart of divisiveness is pride. It's always pride. And it's judging. And it's making sure people understand that we disapprove of them. We disapprove of their opinions. And they're wrong, and we're right. And the thought behind all this stuff is, but, but, but I'm right. I'm right. Now, here's the deal. You see, if you are right, and that's a big if, and your attitude and your behavior are wrong, then you're wrong. Now, we've been uh, in this series about 
divisiveness and, and of course the whole thing that has to do, we want to be indivisible. And of course, it's setting aside our need to be right. Now, one of the things we're running into, we talked about this last week, is fear. Fear is the turbocharger that turns all of the defenses into basically anger. And anger then stirs things up and it creates all kinds of division. And that's what we tend to see. Fear turns me into the person that I mentioned here that I don't want to be around. It turns me into somebody who frames people. Like you kind of create this box for them and then shames them and then sometimes shuns them, okay? Ugly, ugly stuff. But that's who we become when we're afraid. Fear and anger and frustration, you know? The question that we ask when we are afraid, when we're angry, when we're frustrated, like many of us are at this juncture of history is, well, who can I blame? How about if I blame God for this mess? Or how about if I blame the government? Or how about if I blame the vaxxers or the anti-vaxxers? How about if we blame cats? I think cats are responsible for the whole thing. So here's the deal. You can say, I survived COVID. You can survive diseases. You can survive this virus. However, my hope and kindness and relational world didn't. And that's what I want to deal with. That's, that's the big deal, is if your relational world doesn't survive you know, this stupid virus, then what hope is there? So that's kind of, kind of what we're dealing with here, okay? So this is the issue that I think all of us struggle with, and this creates all kinds of problems in our lives. But I'm right. But I'm right. And in most cases, when we do that, we we're actually saying, but I'm more right than Jesus, okay? Which is to be very right, okay? So we're going to be moving on today and talking about this person that we don't want to be. And this is the series, Indivisible. You can see that the heart is kind of stitched up here, okay? Setting aside your need to be right. And that's the question I want to ask you at the start. Would you be willing, for Jesus' sake, for the sake of your relational world, for your sake, to set aside your need to be right? It's a big deal. So, remember the statement I made before? To be right and then to act wrong is to be wrong. It's period. That's just, that's just the way it works, okay? Now, here's what I want to talk about. Here's my question, okay? If that's what's going on, would you be willing, with God's help, to make changes before you do any more damage in your relational world, before you become the person you really don't want to be? Now, the context for the verses I read about, you know, the clarity that are talking about, that when we are with Jesus, we're going to see things more clearly than we ever have before. It, uh, Paul's writing to a very talented and very gifted, but very proud and arrogant church. And he's writing, of course, to a group of people uh, from the city of Corinth. Corinth is in, the, in Greece. Now, for them, as you read through this book, and there's a lot of chapters here, so I can't summarize everything, but for them, knowledge was a big deal. Spiritual gifts were a big deal. And what they wanted in their church and what showed up in their worship services was, you know, basically, you know, the biggest gifts, the splashiest gifts, the ones that, you know, everybody wanted. People would look at them and say, wow, I could wish I could be as spiritual as they are. Okay? So that's kind of what was going on. Now, all this attitude then extended, as I mentioned, into worship, into, into worship services, and it kind of become, became, you know, Corinth's got talent. 
Look at me, look at me, bring it on. You know, look at how wonderful I am. And the attitude inflated their pride to the point where they basically even rejected Paul. Here's Paul, the guy who started the church, you know, the, the apostle, and they're basically saying, well, why should we have to listen to what he has to say? We have the spirit too. So their whole thing was being right. And Paul says to them, he says this, and this is really, really important to understand, especially if you're going to follow Jesus. Knowledge puffs up. Bible knowledge puffs up. And if it doesn't build you up, then that's what it's doing. It's just making your head bigger. But love, love is what builds up. Love is what God wants to see in my life. That's what he wants to see in your life. And so what was happening is then this had, de this had descended into divisiveness. Whenever you get pride in the mix of anything, it will divide a church right down the middle. And Paul says, you guys are immature. You're acting like little kids. That's why he had to say what he did, you know, when it came to this whole thing about love. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And you have to understand, this church was so divided, for him to say this, they're thinking, you've got to be kidding how are we going to be one and perfectly united in mind and thought? That's not going to happen. But his point was that because of the Spirit of God, because the Spirit is one, because the church is one, that's what needs to happen. And as you read on in this letter, it becomes clear that you know, this divisiveness was ripping their church apart. And Paul also remind them that even though there are many different gifts and you know, many different ministries, there are many different people and many different backgrounds, he says that the church, like a human body, it's only healthy when it's one. This is what he says. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. You don't want to be missing any of your parts. And so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews. Some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the one spirit. And what he's basically getting at is, okay, let's say, you know, you have one spirit and I have one spirit. The spirit of God, wouldn't he be drawing us together rather than pushing us apart? To insist, you see, that everyone should think like you think and believe like you believe and act like you lack, uh, act and give preference to the things you give preference to is to be divisive. And this is kind of the way it works. And if you can just kind of stick this image away, tuck it away in your minds. Pride hammers a wedge between me and you. And that wedge is, but I'm right. I'm right, you're wrong. And it always creates all kinds of problems. In, uh, in, in a church and also in our human body. Now this, all, this whole thing culminates in what we know as the love chapter. And you probably had it read at your wedding. You probably didn't listen to the words much because of the fact you're so in love, you know, you're looking into each other's eyes, you know, music's playing and so on. But yeah, he says, Paul says, love is patient. How do you learn how to be patient? <laughs> By being in situations, you know, where people aggravate you and irritate you. Love is kind. It's not jealous, it's not boastful, it's not proud. In other words, love is how you act. Love is how you treat other people. You know, and he goes on to say in this, before he actually goes into these words, he says, you know, you can speak in ways that brings everybody to their knees. He's everybody, you know, who watches you can be gobsmacked by the amazing faith and accomplishments and all the things that you do. And they can be so impressed with your, you know, your 
sacrifices and the things that you're willing to give away, but it can be the greatest show on earth. He said, if it's not backed by love, it's, if it's backed basically by you, you know, kind of getting attention for yourself, then he said, it's nothing. It's zip. It's nada, and it doesn't matter. Love is what makes all we do effective. Love is what God wants to see in our lives. And I'm telling you, if you have a whole bunch of knowledge and you aren't becoming a more loving person, then your knowledge, according to what, Je- what Jesus is saying here, to what Paul is saying here, is worthless. Pride Knowledge and the need to be right cancels out love. And Paul defines love. Love isn't feeling great about a person. Love isn't having all these emotional attachments to somebody that you know. Love is action. And if you want to think about it like this, imagine the most difficult person in your life, okay? The person who irritates you. The, you know, the person that you think that the world could do without. You know, the person about whom you think, you know, if you would be more like me, I could like you more. Paul says, think about loving that person, acting in loving ways, choosing to love them. See, here's what happens, you know. Sometimes we look at, you know, we look at somebody and we think that, well, I disapprove of them and God agrees with me. He disapproves of them too. Well, who told you that? Because many times, you see, we tend to think that God agrees with us on so very many things when it's just our own opinion. And it's sometimes tainted with pride. He says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wrong. Wow, that's significant. <laughs> doesn't remember being wrong. Doesn't have a list. It does, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices Whenever truth wins out, love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. Here's the deal. If you want to be a mature person, that's what a mature person looks like. You can't be mature without learning how to love. Paul says, you know, when I spoke as a, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. But then there comes a day when you have to grow up because children think of themselves almost constantly. And becoming mature means loving and thinking about other people. And you have to stay at it because like it says here at the, begin- at the end, you know, love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance. It's a powerful thing. It's the most powerful thing in the world. See, as we pursue love, then what happens is that becomes a lifelong quest. Then there comes a time when we step into crystal clarity. We see Jesus as he is. And, we, and there will come a time then when we will love perfectly because we will be perfectly loved. We will see Jesus as he is. And all of a sudden we'll understand why things happened the way they did. And most things happened the way they did to make us help us to love God more than we, than we love ourselves and to love others as we love ourselves. It's clarity about real maturity. Now, what I want to see in that moment of purity and clarity, what I want to be able to see at that time is that love was the driving force behind what I did. Not me, not my ego, not my need to be right. And I'm thinking that that's probably what you want too. And here's what I want to get at this morning. Jesus came into a world where religion basically dominated the whole thing, but they didn't understand that love was what God was trying to do. 
That God wanted to love them. That God wanted them to love him. That God wanted them to love others on his behalf. That love would be the defining characteristic of everything that God accomplishes in this world. Even Jesus said, you know, when he said in in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, you know, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He says, God didn't come into the world. The son didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save it, to save the whole thing. Now, I'll tell you exactly what was going on here, and it still goes on, okay? Religion is about disapproval. That's what religion is about, and that's what you see all through, you know, what Jesus dealt with when he was dealing with the religious professionals. They disapproved of him. They disapproved of the sinners. They disapproved of everybody but themselves. And their thought was, well, you know, God agrees with me on just about everything. He disapproves of them too. If I don't approve of people, then he doesn't approve of them either. And the problem is that Jesus was full of grace. Jesus showed grace to everybody. That's what you see pouring out of his life and every healing and every person that he raised from the dead and every person that he forgave. Grace is indivisible. Disapproval divides. Grace is indivisible. And that's really important to understand. So the unthinkable happens. In this religious system, you see, God shows up, and the people, the religious professionals, they think they're more right than God, which is amazing. And, of course, that gives them the license. You know, they disapprove of Jesus, so God must. And so that means that they can reject him and call him a devil and basically sentence him to death. Now, we're kind of used to this, okay? We've heard this, a lot of us have heard it for a lot over the years if we've been in church or read the Bible or whatever. See, just like us, the disciples, they admired successful, wealthy people who seemed to be the pillars of the community. That's what these Pharisees were. And that's what was so shocking. And the problem was that they were only righteous in their own eyes. See, self-righteousness, you know, is being impressed with yourself. So you either can have God's righteousness, which is a humbling experience because he gives it to you free of cost, or you can have self-righteousness, you know? And that's the only brand left after God's righteousness, which you don't want that because Jesus basically dealt with it. Jesus hated it. And God looks at the heart. God wants us, you know, to have an all-consuming love for him and an all-consuming love for other people. And that takes time. That takes growth. That takes understanding. But I'll tell you, it, it has nothing to do with self. It only has to do with what God does in our hearts. Now, here's my point. It's so clear from the biography of Jesus and everything that he did and everything that he said is that we can be intensely biblical people. We can be intensely moral people and end up far, far, far away from what God wants for our lives. That's an astounding thought, isn't it? I mean, after all, you know, pride, which is what this basically is, any kind of pride, pride ended up dividing up, you know, the people, the messengers that God had into angels that loved him and served him and always did his bidding to a whole group of people led by Satan that turned against him and hated him and tried to undo everything that he, everything that he did. And that is who is behind division. That is always who is behind division. Satan, the devil, the enemy of God, the one who rebelled against God and divided heaven is still trying to do that with us. Now, there's a story in Jesus' life that actually kind of 
points all this out that we've been already talking about here. Jesus was invited to be a guest in the house of a guy by the name of Simon. Simon was a Pharisee, apparently well-known and well-to-do. And what you see in this story is how opposed he was to Jesus and how he basically treats him with contempt. For example, it was, uh, it was just honor when somebody came into your house, you kissed them. And if you, they were an equal to you, you would go and you would kiss them on the cheek. If it was a guest of honor, somebody that you felt beholden to, you would kiss them on the hand. So that was part of it. Another rule of etiquette was that, you know, when somebody came into your house, you'd wash their feet. They many times would have a servant with a basin and a towel at the door, and they would wash people's feet as they came in because feet, people's feet were dirty. I mean, it was dusty. Uh, there was a lot of manure and stuff like that in the road, so they, they wanted to clean the feet before they walked into the house. Uh, at the very least, very least, they would have a basin of water and then also a towel at the door for people to wash their own feet. If you had a guest of honor, like Jesus coming into your house, then it would likely be the host that would go and wash the guests of honor feet. Uh, another added bit of thoughtfulness in this, in this culture was basically a little bit of olive oil for people to rub on their faces and so on when they came in. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the rules of etiquette. So Jesus arrives at Simon's house, okay, and gets nothing. Be a little bit like you inviting your boss or inviting the governor to come to your house or you know, somebody, the prime minister, to come to your house and then just basically ignoring them. Like they knock at the door and you ignore them. They walk in, you don't do anything, you don't say hi, you don't shake their hand, you don't greet them in any way. That's what this would be like. So this was intentional. And everybody in, the, everybody in that room that was at that dinner, they're getting nervous because they know exactly what Simon's doing. He is insulting Jesus, and basically treating him with contempt. He's not even worthy of getting a kiss. He's not worthy of having his feet washed, anything. So the tension is so thick in the room you can cut it with a knife. Now another part of that culture was that people could watch from the courtyard and they could also listen to the conversation, kind of like that culture's version of reality TV, you know, where you come and listen into you know, the conversation. Jesus was a famous teacher, they would want to know what he said. And somebody was watching from the courtyard, watching this conversation and watching this whole thing go down. And the person was that woman. You probably have heard in your, in your life about that woman, it's the person in town, it's the woman in town, she, in this case she was a prostitute, had a really awful past and so on, and she's watching this whole thing go down. Now there's some, there's some inkling there that she had apparently been to see, heard Jesus teach early on, and she heard in him and heard in his voice and saw in his eyes a kind of kindness, and she thought to herself, maybe I can change, maybe I can be forgiven. She had hope for the very first time, and she's watching in this kind of accumulation of insult and contempt that Simon's showing. And she's thinking to herself, I've got to do something. But what can I do? What can I do? Well, she does the unthinkable. She crashes the party. <laughs> she actually walks right into the whole party, falls at Jesus' feet. And she, what you see there is this sign of sadness for how the Son of God is getting treated, by contempt, treated with contempt. It says this, then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping, her tears falling on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair, and then kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. 
So what you see is you see Simon, and he's sitting there, he's pretty smug, you know, and he's thinking to himself, you know, God and I are so right on this, and Jesus is so wrong. Look at this thing lying on my floor, making this mess on my floor. The fascinating thing is that this woman knows who Jesus is. And Jesus knows who she is. He knows what's going on, that when she pours out a perfume, that she's basically making a break with her past because she won't need it anymore. The clueless one in this story is the one who sees her as this worthless being and Jesus as this loser prophet. So Jesus brings some clarity to what's going on. And Jesus answered his thoughts Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. Okay? So this guy was a loan shark Okay, back in that culture. Not a loan bunny or a loan puppy. He was a loan shark. And bad things happen when you don't pay debts back. But neither, neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Now, who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered, big, deep question here. Hmm, boy, I've got to think about this. This, is, this will take some theological consideration. Simon answered, I suppose the one to whom he canceled the larger debt. Ding! That's right, Jesus said. Actually, there was no bell there. Jesus said, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon. So he's talking to the woman. He's talking to Simon, but he's looking at the woman, the woman the whole time here. He says, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of oil, uh, olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows very little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man? that goes around forgiving sins. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Interesting, isn't it? The woman here, the most disapproved of person in the room is the one who sees clearly who Jesus is. You know, it's interesting, I think about Simon. I'm guessing Simon, you know, as a Pharisee, knowing his Bible, you know, being an upstanding person, he had never experienced disapproval. Nobody had ever disapproved of him. And yet he's the most disapproving person in the world. And that's kind of what goes on, isn't it? If you've never been disapproved of, if you've never had people, you know, turn up their, their lips at you and, and, you know, flip you off, then you don't know what it's like. She did. Now, you have to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying, Simon, you are such a good and worthy man. I wish I could be more like you. I mean, you are so godly that you have never needed this kind of grace and forgiveness, you know. But this woman, man, she's messed up her life, so she needs a lot of it, but not you. God got a pretty good deal when he got you. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was basically saying, how can God forgive you when you don't see yourself, when you don't have the clarity to understand what is going on in your heart, that you have God sitting at your table, 
and you treat them with contempt. See, the biggest sin in that room wasn't this woman's past. Biggest sin in that room was Simon's inability to love. It's lips that won't kiss. It's, it's knees that won't bend. It's eyes that won't cry. It's hands that won't serve. And it's perfume that stays in the container it came in. And it creates division. Split this room in half. Interestingly enough, it divided things between Simon and the Son of God who sat at his table that day. See, Jesus put it, the greatest command of all is to love God and to love others. And God and others were in this room, and Simon despised them both, like he failed on both counts. And what Jesus was saying is, Simon, you don't see it. You don't see it because you're blind. You don't have clarity. But you have the biggest debt of all. And what's fascinating in this whole issue of who's in and who's out and who does God approve of and who does he not approve of, you know, and who's right and who's wrong, this continues on actually in the people of Jesus. Now, they had this massive council, we're going to talk about it next week, you know, in history, where they were able to bridge a divide that was basically, I mean, it was like the Grand Canyon. It was huge. But you see division, divisiveness, just like COVID, it just keeps morphing off into little creatures here and there. And it's contagious, and it makes people sick. And I'd like to tell you what the followers of Jesus discovered, that the grace and the kindness and the love and the mercy of God is not based on having the same doctrinal distinctives. It's not based on, you know, having the same traditions. And please understand me, you know, it's not about having the same opinion about COVID or about vaccines or about the government guidelines or the end times or any of that stuff. That's not what brings unity. It's not about agreement on dietary, you know, dietary, uh, dietary guidelines or, or cleanliness or schooling or fashion or you know, who, how we feel about the politicians du jour or what political party we're part of, whether it's liberal or free or you know, NDP or conservative or whether it's Republican or Democrat or even communist. That's not what brings unity. You know, some churches are formal. And they, they have their liturgy read. Sometimes it's read in Latin or other languages. And they have buildings with high ceilings in them and stained glass windows. And Jesus loves them. There's some churches, you know, they're kind of like in the notebook church, you know, where they don't have a whole lot of music or worship, you know, at the front end of things and so on. But, you know, you can tell that thing, the real, you know, things going on when all of a sudden the notebooks click and, you know, and, and then they dive into the lesson for the day. And Jesus loves them. And there are churches, you know, where, you know, the worship level is based on how much you perspire. I mean, people are swinging from the chandeliers, you know, for two hours, praising God. Jesus loves them. Jesus cares about them all. And based on Jesus' encounter with Simon and this prostitute, everybody is welcome to come home. Everybody receives grace if they want it, whether it's the younger brother, you know, who's blown everything, or whether it's the older brother who's always done everything right. You know, divisiveness and disapproval and contempt are always wrong. No matter whether it's the older brother or the younger brother or whether it's, you know, with a Pharisee and a prostitute. And God's grace is not based on whether we're gay or straight. It's not based on whether we've been wise or foolish or how we've spent our money or anything like that. It's based on God's will to love us and his call in our lives to love other people. 
this crazy love of God has made all of us, created all of us, and treasures all of us. He wants all of us back, and he has a plan for my life, and he has a plan for your life. And to be divisive with this kind of love and this kind of grace is just unthinkable. Based on Jesus' action and Jesus' words and all that's been written about his life, the thing that blocks us away from others and from him is pride. It's pride. That was the original sin, and I'm telling you, when it gets into our hearts, especially when it gets into how we follow Jesus, it just is ugly and wrong, and it messes up everything. And so what's, very, what's so very clear in this story about the sinful woman and Simon is that one of them recognized Jesus, and one didn't. One didn't. One left forgiven, and the other one left pretty much the same, probably worse. God's love God's grace is divisive when people are basing how they relate with God and how they relate with others on their religion and on their performance. See, to deal with God, if you want to be close to Jesus, if you want to know the power of the Spirit of God in your life, you know, if you want, then you've got to love what Jesus called the least of these. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. It's just basic, basic stuff. And to become the person who's divisive, to become the person who has to be right, has to be right, and has to disapprove of other people. The dangerous thing. See, here's the deal. I don't know if you remember the illustration I used at the beginning, you know, with the guillotine. The chopping off a piece of the body is always a big problem, right? Especially if it's the head. There's nobody who would say it's normal, you know, to cut off a hand or to cut off a head or to cut off a leg or something like that. Because it's one. We are called to be one. One. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One body. One spirit. One God and Father of us all. And to divide that up is wrong. See, Paul speaks to this with Titus about how dangerous this is in the body of Christ. He says this, very interesting, and he uses very strong language. He says, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time, and after that have nothing to do with them. You can be sure that such people are warped and sinful and that they are self-condemned. This puts it, on the danger list. And I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus came. Jesus stepped out of heaven where he had perfection. And he kept humbling himself and humbling himself. And, you know, when he came into an audience, he wasn't the one who said, well, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. You're so very wrong. And then yours, you and you and you and you and you. You're all wrong. You're all wrong. I'm right. He never did that. The only one he had to deal with like that were the people who thought they were right, the religious Pharisees. This is what it says about how Jesus acted. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Listen to this. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. We think, but, but I'm right. No, no, no. Think about others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own self-interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be 
to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And then he appeared in human form, and he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. And therefore, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all other names. That's who Jesus is. Let me finish the story that I started off with. So we actually ended up at the beach the next day, and I didn't get my way. We left early like they wanted to and so on. So I, we got to the beach there, and we're kind of hanging out together. And I noticed something seemed a little bit off, you know, in our meeting. And so I, I said, when we sat down to kind of have some quiet time together, I said, is there anything wrong? And all the eyes turned toward me. And that day... That day, I found out the damage of needing to be right and what it does to a little community like ours. And everybody had their say and how difficult and divisive I'd been. And I just, like, as I began to see myself through their eyes, I started crying and I I couldn't stop. And I'll tell you, that is a moment that I never want to forget. Never want to forget that, first of all, because it's painful. But you see, it's like seeing yourself in a mirror instead of behind the mirror. And it was what I needed to see. And I want that mirror to be as clear as crystal. Because you see, one day I'm going to show up before Jesus, and he's going to know what I've been like. And I'm going to have to explain it. So through my tears, I asked them to forgive me. And then this guy who was the leader of our group, his name was Robert Brewer, and he was this amazing man. He felt that his spiritual gift was love, and it was. He read these words straight out of the book of 2 Corinthians. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And they did. And I am so glad for that experience. You know, I wish I could say, well, I learned my lesson that day, and I never again needed to be the person who was right. I was never again obnoxious. Well, that wouldn't be true. But I'm telling you, I learned something about myself. And just so you know, that's what we need. You know, see, because they're going to have crystal clarity. We step on that overside, over the line of eternity, we're going to have crystal clarity. And right now we have a choice. Right now we can choose that we are, don't need to be right, that we can humble ourselves and deal with our pride so that we can live life. And this is my final picture, okay? You ready for this? This is just amazing. See, this is where we're at right now. We have to decide. Am I gonna, you know, am I gonna be right about everything? Because I'm telling you, you'll scorch the earth behind you. Or am I going to live with humility and healing and grace? You have a choice. And my question for you this morning is, where in your life are you the person that you just can't recognize? And will you ask God to help you to see that person for who they really are? God, I'm guessing that we all have things that we're not proud of. We've acted in ways, God, that 
have been obnoxious to you and obnoxious to other people. We've all been the person that we never wanted to be and we would never recognize. Help us, God, with your help and your grace to see ourselves for who we really are, to have the clarity to leave the childish ways behind us and be the persons that we were created to be. Amen.